Hello, and welcome to Asians Represent. My name is Daniel, and today's episode is about designing games with Asian themes. But it's more than just applying an Asian skin or an Asian aesthetic to a game like D and D. This is about designing games that not only have an Asian aesthetic and an Asian theme, but a game with mechanics and structure that are greatly influenced by Asian cultures. We're going to be using Jiangshu Blood in the Banquet Hall by Banana Chan and Sun Fung Lim, co-published by Wet Ink Games and Game in a Curry, to kind of deconstruct this and talk about how you can make your games better and how you can create ethical and positive Asian representation in your board games or even your TTRPGs. So, um, for this episode, we are actually joined by two guests. Uh, in addition to Banana Chan herself, uh, we have Ting and Steve. You know Steve from our Asians Read live streams on Twitch, and Ting is actually a member of our Discord server. Now, Ting is a cast member on our Jiangshu Blood in the Banquet Hall actual play, which you can find at YouTube.com/slash/AZNSrep. Uh, we were supposed to record another uh, episode of the actual play, the grand finale to our two-part miniseries, but technical difficulties got in the way, and we ended up having to pivot into this interview. But I think what we got out of it was actually really valuable and something uh, that I know a lot of people are looking for. So, um, without further ado, please give it up for Banana Chan, Steve, Ting, uh, and this amazing discussion on how to make an Asian game from the ground up. It's so incredible to see a um, like an Asian game, and for me, like a Chinese game, and one that's about the North American experience, get so much attention. Like that's amazing, and it it once again shows that like people care about these stories. For all the people who said like nobody wants a game about Chinese people, like no, clearly people want this game, and uh, so like big ups to you for 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 working on this and and Senfung for putting all of this together uh, and assembling like like a dope team. All the different writers um, are are just incredible. I'm looking forward to an eventual. Uh, sequel to Jiangshi Blood in the Banquet Hall. Maybe it's one set in the modern age, and instead of doing like Knights Black Agents, it's just like Dim Sum and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> yes. That's a great title. Yeah, Dim Sum and Dragons. It's Ooh. it's a game about dim sum restaurants that are actually specialized like facilities for these secret agents who. Are actually have been actually built these restaurants above these portals to other dimensions, Ooh. and these grab Chinese restaurant owners gra- grab your notebooks. And these Chinese <laughs> restaurant owners are actually like agents who are fighting back these interdimensional horrors. That'd be amazing. Please, someone make that dips of a dragons, <laughs> chicken feet in the entrance hall. There, that's the that's the thing. <laughs> that's that, that's the thing. That's the intro uh, intro adventure. <laughs> I, I watched this um, really great video by the the Fung Bros. They're these like American like YouTubers, Chinese American YouTubers, and they did this video about uh, Western Chinese food in like LA, I think. And they were we went to this restaurant that does boneless chicken feet. What? How? Yeah, and what? they actually have like. Uh, the grandma at the back of the restaurant who's just like deboning these chicken feet real oh fast. And I didn't even know you could Whoa. do it that fast. I also don't like to eat chicken feet because it's just so much work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work for not a lot. Same with pig What's feet. Your... Um, oh, yeah. Yes. What's everyone's favorite style of chicken feet? <laughs> I, have, I haven't had chicken feet in a long time. Um, it's not something you see in the, on the menu too often. <laughs> Um, the, the last time I remember having chicken feet was when I was a kid. Uh, I remember eating them and loving them because they were like super saucy, ba- basically a vessel for sauce for me. And then when I was done, I took all of the bones and I had left enough like cartilage and stuff for the feet to like still remain the feet. 
And then I went up to my little sister and I put both feet on her shoulders behind her <laughs> and she freaked out and I got in a ton of trouble. Uh, so that's my chicken feet story. <laughs> nice. Okay. So if, 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 <laughs> so if Steve hasn't eaten chicken feet, sorry, I'm imagining you when you were selling that story, I thought you were going to say, I went up behind her and then I put both of the chicken feet on one shoulder as if she were a pirate and it was a parrot. Um, I thought that's what you were going to say. Um, nope. Okay, so if, Steve, you haven't eaten chicken feet in a long time, perhaps we should rephrase to, what is everyone's favorite Asian food? Ooh. And I guess since we're talking about Jai blood in the banquet hall, maybe we should talk about what's our favorite Chinese dish. Mm-hmm. What's our favorite Chinese dish, if we've got one? And that's a tough question. For me, I'll start with with one of mine. It's Xiaolongbao. Oh, you took mine. You could we could have the same one too. <laughs> we could have the same one. But I I was in Shanghai and I was like living alone in Shanghai and super lonely. <laughs> and I went to this uh, the Yuyuan Gardens in Shanghai. It's like a really famous yes. tourist destination. And there's a famous Xiaolongbao place there. And I went there and I bought a stack of Xiaolongbao in like the the big steamers. I think I had like four of them. And the one that I had had um, was pork and crab meat with crab roe stuffed into the folds. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Mm. So that's mine. What about the rest of you? Ting, I know I stole yours. Yeah, I went to the same place uh, with my dad. Uh, I think that that place is supposed to be where Shalomba uh, originated, like the first mm-hmm. restaurant to serve it. Super popular. So here's a Shalomba. How about Banana and Steve? What about you? So I also spent a long time... Uh, I also spent a lot of time in Shanghai. So when I was growing up, uh, my parents and I, we would go back and forth between Hong Kong and Shanghai, like when I was younger. Um, And so during the summers, uh, my grandmother would always take me out for like, uh, for like lunch or dinner. And I think one of my favorite dishes would have to be, uh, so it's called kofu, but I don't know how to say it. And I think it's like, I think it's braised, uh, like, this is going to sound terrible, but wheat gluten. <laughs> so it's wheat <laughs> gluten, and it's, like, in these cubes, and it's cold. Oh, it's, like, a cold yep. dish, and it's got, like, the the, uh, the black fungus um, stuff <laughs> with it, with, like, bam- they're not bamboo shoots. I think there's something else, but, like... Like, like black fungus, like the mu'er. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah, that's it. And then, uh, yeah, it's just like all mixed together and it's like this cold dish and it's like, uh, it's like served on a square platter if it's like fancy. Um, so I, I think that's one of my favorites and it's vegetarian. So vegetarians, mm. you like that. I love wood ear. Me too. So good. Okay. So Steve, what about you? Barbecue pork. Give me some, give me some mm. pork with like really crispy skin. I have such good memories of like going to the butcher with my my parents in Toronto Chinatown, uh, and just being terrified of like you know the inside out rabbits and stuff. And like as a kid, you don't fully understand, and my parents didn't really want to explain it. Um, but always knowing that this is the place I want to be because at the end of it, I get a whole bunch of barbecue pork. Um, now as an adult, <laughs> I still go to those like same shops. Uh, one of them is still the same shop. Um, I still don't speak the language, but I pay in cash, and they're friendly to me. <laughs> you speak the language, then? Yeah, I I picked up what my parents were doing, and I just copied that, and it's been working out really great for for me and my protein intake. Mm. I used to live in one of my first apartments was in Toronto Chinatown, and I lived right if so if you're if you live in toronto and you know this area i lived a block north on the above a jewelry shop on the west side of dundas and spadina right yep. above a jewelry shop um on the same block as like longong which is like the the local brotherhood i lived across the street from like the vietnamese places that are in chinatown and literally i, I would just go across the street 
get some barbecue pork, bring it back, and that would be my like part of my food for the week. I ate so much barbecue pork when I lived in Chinatown. Um, so since we can't play Jiangxi, we will conclude our epic, the epic story of 88 noodles. We didn't want to leave you folks without any content on Double Happiness Day. It's August 8th. It's August 8th. Um, we got to do something. So we figured let's pivot. Let's talk to you, Banana Chan, and let's talk about Jiangxi, where the game came from, your inspirations, the process. Uh, and we'll tell our own stories. I think all of us have stories that kind of relate to those that you tell in Jiangxi. And that's why I think there's this appeal, right? Mm-hmm. Even though it's set in like the 1920s. I know there are other settings, but even though it's set in the 1920s, and that's what all the, I guess, the, the marketing is. Yeah. You know, those stories are still very much our stories. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, how did the project start? So, the project started when, uh, so I guess, like, backtrack many, many years ago. Uh, one of the first games that I, uh, that I remember playing at a convention, like a small convention, um, was this game, TTRPG, uh, where the players uh, have to pick up they have to create their character based on like a Chinese food menu. And so this was like a while ago, Mendez wrote an article on this. Um, and like, I've obviously moved on from that. Um, but during that time when I was playing this game, uh, I just didn't have a good time. And, you know, I, I think it's okay. Uh, that, uh, that I didn't have a good time because all this other stuff came out of it. But, um, and I've also like you know processed all these feelings, but also uh, that sort of made me want to make a game based around my own culture, um, and you know a game that uh, that sort of like talked about like you know the things that I was passionate about, but also like you know about food because why not? So there's that, um, <coughs> and then later on down the line, I think like a couple of years later, I met Sen. Uh, I don't remember where we met. We probably met online or at a convention, but uh, we definitely had a lot of uh, a lot of parallels in terms of like stuff that we liked um, and like stuff that we were working on as well. I think uh, he was like you know really into experimental RPGs and LARPs, um, and so like that's how we sort of got connected and we started chatting. Like, Sen is obviously very big in the board game industry and, like, the comic book industry. Um, so it was kind of cool to, like, be like, hey, I'm working with Sen. And, uh, you know, we started uh, going through this, like, Google Doc sheet and just, like, planning out all of our ideas. The Google Doc is still a thing. Like, it's still there. And we're just, mm-hmm. like, you know, going through all these, like, different ideas. But one of them was for this. It was for Jiangxi, where it was, like, yeah, we should definitely, um, you know, make a game about our own culture and like, you know, the stuff that we, we feel personally connected to and not let, you know, someone who's not from our culture make this game. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's super important to have, if you're like a designer, you're into games, I think it's really important to have someone in your life who you just talk about random ideas with like you're going to have ideas that you might not ever make into a game but it's great having that person to bounce ideas off of and of, of course it's it's something that we talk about like steve we've been talking about this for i mean how long have we been in court how long have we been streaming like five months four decades four decades Feels that's like how it. long it's it's felt yeah. And we talk about, like, yeah, taking ownership of these stories and creating games about us before people who <coughs> aren't Asian go and create those games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, you've done some, like, incredible stuff. And you're currently working on some other RPGs. I don't know, like, what NDAs you have. But, I mean, you're working on the Dune one, which which was publicly announced. Yes. And that's super cool. Um, but today's about Jiangxi. So <laughs> you wanted to, you know tell an Asian story and as Asian people you wanted to you know tell your own story so like my question is why did you pick the 1920s so we were throwing around the idea of so there are two answers to that so we were throwing around the idea of having something 
um, that was a little further back, so closer to when you know the Chinese Exclusion Act was like you know became realized. But then we were thinking, oh, maybe it's like you know a little too harsh. Uh, so let's like fast forward a little bit. You know, after all the terrible things that had happened, like after the Chinese Exclusion Act was you know made concrete, there was also this other stuff that happened, like the fire, the plague. Uh, that all happened in San Francisco. So we were like, okay, let's just fast forward through all of that stuff and, you know, sort of focus on like the resiliency of these Chinese immigrants and how like, you know, they sort of lived through all this stuff. Um, so that was like one thing that we wanted to, we wanted to, you know, focus on. And then uh, in general, in terms of like the 1920s, I think that a lot of people think of that time period as like a glamorous time period. Like, you know, with all the, um, with all the like the media that we see today, that's about the 1920s. It's like very glamorous for white people, but not so much for, yeah. uh, not so much for everyone else. So we kind of wanted to discuss our history um, and like sort of highlight that that it wasn't you know great for everyone. So so you kind of um, oh that's cool. That was so it was, it was very calculated. Uh, when you picking the 1920s, because that's interesting. It's a, I never thought about it as a time when, like, yeah, white people thought it was really glamorous post, you know, post World War One. America came in and helped win World War One, which mm-hmm. is really not the case. But that's interesting. I think I mean for for those of you who are watching the stream, and you kind of watched our first Jiangxi actual play and thought it was really interesting about how you know this is a story of a Chinese family. This is a story about a Chinese family living in North America at a time when it was, you know, really difficult to be a Chinese person. So for a little bit of context, uh, if we're going to look at the treatment of Chinese people in North America, we have to go back to at least 1875 before the Chinese Exclusion Act was even passed. And in 1875, uh, something called the Page Act was um, basically passed. And this effectively uh, enforced a ban that was placed in 1862 on something called the coolie trade, um, which would basically said that Chinese people can't be brought to North America, even though Chinese people were coming to the U.S. voluntarily. Uh, this act had like extreme repercussions on the Chinese community because it dehumanized the Chinese people and treated them like commodities to be traded. Um, in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, and this essentially excluded Chinese laborers from entering the U.S., but it exempted people like teachers, students, merchants, and diplomats in order to protect U.S. trade. So the government kept their interests in mind, but not the interests of Chinese people who are actually coming to the U.S. to try to start a life. And the Chinese Exclusion Act wasn't even repealed until 1943. And then the effects of it weren't really undone, at least legislatively, until 1965 with the Immigration Act. So, like, this is a tough time to be Chinese, and you chose, like, really heavy material. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've made a game that shows how resilient the Chinese community is, the Asian community is. We're still here. Mm-hmm. We're still very much thriving. Um, and I think you did such a good job in making sure players are able to tell these positive stories about resistance, about perseverance, which is why I was super happy to even contribute a little bit to the project. Having read the book now, I'm think, I think it's incredible. Thank you. Uh, Steve and Ting, like, also, please feel free to chime in if you have questions of your own. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm all elbows right now. I'm, I'm jumping in. I'm jumping go, in. Go, go. Uh, so I, I didn't want to start off with this because Daniel had already given tons of kudos, but I wanted to share with you some thoughts that other folks have told me when they watch the stream, uh, which I haven't passed on just yet. But uh, paraphrasing here, a lot of people just, they said in the first 20, 25 minutes as Asian Americans, they felt seen more than any other game <laughs> they've ever like experienced. <laughs> uh, just like the small little pieces there, they were just like, 
like this was clearly made by like Asian people who just like get it and we don't have to like go through all the labor and the effort to like tone or uh, please our tone uh, make sure that we're like being accessible and that kind of stuff we can just kind of be Asian and all the complexity and messiness that it is so a huge impact still five days left in the Kickstarter as of recording this uh, what I also wanted to share was that you know I'm not a big uh, I don't understand a lot of Chinese history, especially in America. And I even made a mistake in the stream itself where I assumed my character would just be in school. Uh, and, you know, Banana, you talked about how, you know, that probably wasn't the case. Like your character, 17 years old, probably wasn't in school, probably had to spend their entire time working at the restaurant. And that was like, that like shook me because I thought about all like the pressure I experienced of like going to school, to get really, really good grades, all that kind of stuff. And I know everything is always a result of past, of, of the history. And there is no clear line, just like real life, between historical events and, and real life. But there are there are ripples. And I couldn't help but like begin to process, you know, what was it like my parents, my grandparents, when they were ex- going through what it is to be Asian in North America? And how did that affect how I was raised and the lessons I was taught? And it gave me a lot of jumping off points for just reflection self uh self-introspection so that was that was amazing didn't expect that from the game but there it was and it was great it made you feel maybe feel feel a lot thank Tim, you Tim, what were your impressions play playing the game uh as a as a player um just just the fact that growing up uh, my family had a restaurant and i worked there and seeing the seeing the, the dysfunction of uh, family members uh, working together, and then that that experience, I, I could I could bring to a game. It was like this is the first time I could do that. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really yeah. it's really rare when we can actually say like, oh yes, I have this real lived experience that is hyper relevant to a game. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's really neat. Like, I really want to play this game with my family. Like, I want to go, because my parents play TTRPGs now, which is insane to say. Um, but I want to go and be like, Mom, I know my, my mom grew up in Chinese restaurants in Toronto, like all over the city. And I want to play this game with her. I want to see what that's like. Well, if we get the chance, because my family right now is just obsessed with mahjong. <laughs> like we're we're going to, we're going tomorrow to go play mahjong for like five hours. Oh wow! Maybe That's a long time. I know. Yeah, right? We need to uh, make a uh, RPG with mahjong mechanics. <laughs> don't get don't get uh, me started. <laughs> uh, but going back to Zhangshu, mm-hmm. I really wanted to focus a little bit, a tiny bit, actually, on the art. So we have, we we gushed a ton about the art when we were seeing it, all the overlays yeah, that you kind of made with all the assets from Zhangsha. And if you go to the Kickstarter, you can actually just scroll through, and it's a joy just to scroll through and look at all the images. Um, but I want to start with kind of like the process of, you know, working with your artists and getting this amazing art done. But then I also want to talk, after you finish that, about changes you had to make with your art based on feedback. But if we can start with just like how great the art is and how that came about. We want to yeah. talk about the cover, just all of the things that are going on there. Oh my Quan gosh. Chai. Quan Chai is incredible. Like, he is just a genius with all of the, all of the art. Um, yeah, so, uh, so when, uh, when we approached Quan Chai, uh, this was Sen and I, we had a meeting with him over Zoom, kind of like this. And uh, we proposed to him, you know, the idea of uh, making a cover for the game. And Quan Chai, because he's so good and he's so high in demand, you know, both in the uh, board game industry and also like the the role playing game industry, uh, we sort of had to like pitch it to him. We basically had to say like, this is what it is. This is you know what we're thinking of doing. And um, before everything, like he he just wanted to hear us out. And once we had told him like you know what this game is about he was just like okay i'll do it um for him it's like you know obviously you sort of have to like make sure that he understands like what's going on because 
he can deny a job. And he was just like, you know, if this was made by anyone else, then I'd probably not do this. Um, or if this was like, you know, made by uh, non-Asian creators, then I would probably not do this. Uh, but based on like, you know, everything that you told me, then I, that's why I'm taking the job. And so um, he was onboarded. He did such an incredible job on it. He gave us two treatments and then uh, we picked this one. Um, and there's like so much detail that's in this cover. Like there's an incredible amount of detail. Like I think it was like, it was like a month after I'd seen the, the finished product that I just realized that there were flies like next to the Jiangshi's mouth, um, mm -hmm. the Jiangshi's mm -hmm. mouth. And I was just like, oh wow, I didn't notice that before. Um, but for him, it was also like, I don't want to speak too much on his behalf, but, uh, he told us that it was very personal to him as well. And it was like, I think it was like on Twitter or something or Facebook where he was like, yeah, this is like the most Asian I've ever felt making this thing. <laughs> so yeah, there are so many elements about the cover that I really love. I mean, like, I love how you have all the different roles. There's like the grandma, there's the kid, there's the dad, there's the mom. Um, there's the baby who's the just, baby who's just chilling there, just looking super upset. It's like, hey, I want attention. Why aren't you paying attention to me? And it's like, we got we got a business to run. Like, sorry, baby. I I, I always think that the baby's just like work harder. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that baby's expression. That's what it says. Um, for me, I think the the most striking part of the cover is the actual Jiangshu in green behind the family. I like it for a couple reasons. I like it because I like it more that now that I've actually played the game, because you did say that like you can become like a Jiangshu, but you could become human again. Mm -hmm. Right. So then these monstrous characters are also very much human characters in the game. And that's what that art says to me. I really like that. Um, I don't know that if that was intentional or not, but I think there, there's just so much good going on with this cover. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like a movie poster type of cover. I'm definitely going to print one out and have it hang somewhere. You should. I mean, the, I got the, I got the, um, I got the, uh, well, oh my God. Pledge level. No, no, I've got the uh, what's um what's Simu Liu? He's starring in that Marvel movie, uh, Shang Shang Chi. I get the Shang Shang Chi vibes from the font, and I love it so much. Yeah, I'm so glad um, that we like. I, you've probably seen like a lot of jokes about like font usages on uh, you know Asian fonts. Like, I'm I'm glad that we worked with Matt and. Uh, Matthias Benici, he sort of like gave us this treatment and it looks good. Like it looks like a movie font. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Like so, all of the pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Do uh, like so the, the other pieces. Oh, sorry. Um, so no, the, tingo. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> so Canadian. So yeah. What? Want to go? Go ahead, Ting. Go uh, ahead, Ting. It, yeah. I do like the that the that the art is. Uh, sets the tone for the game it's, it's serious it's not silly like Jiangxi uh, in movies it's all, all the movies I've seen it's uh, they're comedies they're not like straight horror movies mm -hmm. in this in this game it's not you know it's not it can be funny but it's not you know a silly comedy yeah mm -hmm. that's a, that's a really good point was that intentional to, to make it like a more serious game? Whereas like Ting said, a lot of the Jiangxi movies that come out of Hong Kong are comedies. So we had two, well, we had a few ideas for this. We wanted to do something that was funny. So it was relatable to the audience. Um, but we also wanted to do something serious. Um, and because it deals with such serious subject matter, um, we were looking for something that was a little more serious in terms of the artwork. Hmm. Yeah. I, I really liked that the monsters themselves are kind of goofy. They're kind of, they're kind of presented in like a kind of funny way. Like they're hopping vampires. That's pretty hilarious, which allows the, the fear and the tension to come from other sources. And I assume that was like something intentionally designed. Uh, 
Yes. <laughs> uh, what, yep. Steve, way to ask a leading question. <laughs> it wasn't even, wasn't even a question. <laughs> no, it's all good. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, we wanted to do like several different treatments of this. So if you look at, um, Stephen Wu's artwork, uh, he also did like some, uh, some treatments of the Jiangsha and, there are some that are a little sillier and then others that are not as silly. Mm. And, you know, it goes back and forth between this, like, ominous vibe to this really creepy uh, thing. Because, I mean, the Junction themselves, like, you know, they initially start off as uh, these silly hopping things. But then later on, when they gain more superpowers, they also start getting like creepier and weirder like they can shapeshift and fly and do all that fun stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. um so still kind of go- staying on the art here um there was one piece of art where i know you got some criticism and i think you uh you changed it and from what i remember quite quickly mm-hmm. um could you maybe kind of walk us through what the art was how it what the feedback was how it changed and what that process was yeah so uh initially when we had the artwork done it was um the men had those q haircuts and so uh we were thinking like you know for the time period and i'm gonna say that this is partially my fault because i watched a lot of warrior before then and then i realized that warrior is a great show (laughs) so good (laughs) but then i also realized that warrior is the wrong time period but anyway um Warrior is like a few years uh, before uh, the 1920s. It's like, I think the 1890s or something like that. Yeah, it's just post the the Exclusion Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the artists that we were, uh, we were working with, they had introduced like, you know, they had included the Q haircut. Um, and by that time, uh, I think the, the Q haircut was starting to go out of style. Um, and we wanted to get rid of like, you know, uh, we realized like later on, like after, you know, getting some feedback on it, that it was a sign of oppression and it was like a little too much. And, you know, there is a pretty heavy impact on that. So we decided to get rid of that. So, um, what we did was we just contacted, you know, our artists and told them, Hey, can you make these changes? And they were amazing. They just like, you know, did it within a few hours and that was that. That's awesome. If any of you are listening or or watching right now and you want to, if you're looking for a resource to, to do this, would you, would is there anything that you'd recommend in terms of like that research? I have a recommendation. Um, It's a book called China. It's just called Chinese clothing uh, by Hua Mei. And it is a concise history of clothing worn by Chinese people of, all social classes mm-hmm. um, across all the various ethnic groups in China. Uh, it covers like how they did their eyebrows, their lipstick, how they did their hair, the types of clothes they wear, their underwear, everything. Um, so doing research is so, so important. Yeah, it's super important. And also I think like making changes is a lot easier than people assume it is. I mean, for bigger companies, maybe it's a little harder because of all the red tape and bureaucracy and you know all that stuff but i think when we were approached with feedback it didn't take that long for us to change it and it wasn't that much work on our part i mean granted the artists had to do the work um and we just like you know we gave them we we paid them a little bit extra for the changes uh but i mean at the end of the day it really wasn't that much you know much of a heavy lift for us Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, that's super important talking about, you know, having an artist who is willing to make these changes and adjust. Um, I've got a question just about the components of the game. So I think it's, I think it's super thought out. I love the dice mechanic and we gushed about the, the D8 mechanic and the fours. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. I have a question specifically about the spirit paper. Mm-hmm. So like, in Taoism, like fus, like sigil paper is a very important component of practice. Have you put mechanisms in place in the game to ensure that people don't appropriate this spirit paper or, you know, use it in a way that's disrespectful 
to real practitioners? Yeah. So um, the reason why we're calling it spirit paper instead of fulu or fu uh, is so that there is a bit of a distance between like what it is and, you know, what it is in real life. Um, there's that portion of it. And also trying to stick with like the popular culture, you know, the pop culture way of referencing this thing instead of referencing it through, you know, the, the way that esoteric Taoism relates to this thing or, you know, Shintoism relates to this thing. Um, I think when we're talking about spirit paper specifically, uh, like the, the mechanic itself, um, we're hoping that people sort of use it as like a way to, you know, to introduce themselves into like, you know, more, uh, you know, various different ways of like how people play with magic or like, you know, sorcery in general versus like, you know, what we're so used to seeing in Western, uh, Western magic. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I'm a little surprised that no one brought up, like, this is the first time anyone's brought up the, the Taoist, uh, magic stuff. Like, no one really talked to us about that. Like, I, I think, like, in terms of feedback, like, I was waiting for someone to, like, question that more than anything else. And this is, like, the first time someone's brought it up, which is great because I've been waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> I've been prepared for this answer. The reason why is because, I mean, you made me, you recommended I even read this book, mm -hmm. The Tao of Craft, mm -hmm. which is where I learned about this. Um, it's, it's a question that I've, thought about a lot with our Dungeons and Asian series as we kind of figure out what magic looks like in our world mm -hmm. and you know like Chinese magic and different conceptions of the magical and the esoteric vary from culture to culture and for us Steve you were there for those conversations as we were prepping for Gen Con and we were talking about what magic could look like for our, our magic user characters and Agatha brought up a really good point of us having Fulu um, in the game in a way where it might not actually be respectful towards people who actually use that. And we actually backed away. We made the decision to back away from it and instead go the route of like a fang shi, like, a, like an old occultist. Uh, instead, you know, in a practice that very much isn't as dominant or existent as, say, you know, Tao spirit papers. Um, so I've got a question. If somebody is, say, uncomfortable uh, with the idea of using spirit paper, despite you know the very positive efforts you've made to distance yourself from that practice mm -hmm. while still honoring how they are presented in Jiangxi pop culture, because you know you always see them with like it's got it's like on the face like this. Yeah, uh, it's very much part of it, and it's in that Stephen Wu piece that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, if people are uncomfortable with the idea of using the spirit paper, is that an integral component of the actual gameplay itself? No, no, it's definitely because we haven't touched on it in our play. No, it's it's totally optional, um, and it's up to like the the GM's discretion to use it or not. Um, and also in terms of like using it, it's not really like it's not really a part of. I, I would say that it's more like. Um, like a thing to get all the players together as a family, like quote unquote family. It's more of like something to like, to keep them together versus like something that's like supposed to, you know, to, it's like one holding piece, right? It's like that one holding mechanic that makes sure that like all the players sort of feel like they're in line with one another versus like, you know, the all the family drama that people have, uh, throughout the game like I feel like a lot of the players already they're pushing pretty hard on their characters with you know the the different relationships and like the the heavy you know family dynamics um so I think that's like sort of what the spirit paper was supposed to be for um and I think like with the spirit paper as well it's sort of you don't really need it what you could do instead like for the GM, at least, you could just, you know, ask the players to think about, like, what's something that's keeping you together instead. 
So that's basically what the what the mechanic is, um, mm-hmm. and it can be removed. Or if it um, if players don't want to play with it, they can just like set it to a side. It doesn't make or break the game. I think that's that's super important because I mean we've certainly on the stream on the podcast we've discussed harmful elements or maybe uncomfortable or tension inducing mm-hmm. elements of games, and it's really comforting to see like hey. You know, we've taken the measures to make sure this is as respectful as possible, but we've also made this, and I mean, you, you, you even admitted you were expecting people to ask questions about this. Uh, we've taken this element of the game and made it optional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the tension that Steve, you and I have talked about so much with L5R and how honor and strife are just built into how the game works. And even though I don't want to have to do that in order to play the game, I have to. Um, we have a really good question in the, uh, in the chat, uh, Shadow Uzumaki asked why Jiangshi in the first place? And were there any other Chinese creatures that were considered? Um, so for us, the Jiangshi were like a physical manifestation of all the stresses and all the oppression that the characters face, because when you, when you're turning into a Jiangshi, you're losing yourself. And that's sort of like the thing that we wanted to portray. That's why we chose the Jiangshi in general. And also, you know, they're fun. But uh, <laughs> the I think like, you know, the, the first thing that we wanted to do was to make something that was like, something that was like life sucking, right? That's like, like identity sucking. And so we were just like, okay, let's use the Jiangshi. Um, we do have a few other creatures that are in the game itself like if you want to play with like other creatures um we have just like a quick overview on like what the uh mogoi are and we have like a little bit of like stuff on you know it's not really as highlighted but it's you know there is a mention of it but we talk about like bakwaizing and um we also talk about uh, the uh, fox spirits, um, which uh, we we don't use their proper name because it's um it's a, a derogatory term <laughs> um, in Cantonese and Mandarin, so we just call them fox spirits. Mm-hmm. That's really that's really cool. I always thought like the the Jiangshi are like you know emblemic of that loss of agency because they don't have control, mm-hmm. right, and they're being controlled. Um, and it, it's very much reflective of like, you know, the Chinese communities and these Chinese people who are being, con- you know, they are losing their agency to the white people of America and to, you know, the American government. They're losing their ability to have their loved ones come to their new lives. They're losing their ability to, you know, run an honest business, as we've kind of talked about in our actual play when that cop came in. Mm-hmm. And Steve had to deal with the cop, um, right? Um, I, I think it's like the perfect choice. I, I really like using the Jiangshu for this purpose because unlike a vamp, like a Western vampire that bites you and does physical violence to you in order to like do you harm, they don't need to actually like break your body. They can just hurt you emotionally and drain you emotionally. And that I think today uh, is very, very relevant. And I think a lot of players, Asian or otherwise, have a lot of stories to tell about their own emotional draining and emotional burdens and how they have to deal with it and how sometimes the healing process isn't just by yourself. You actually do need to rely on family, maybe chosen family, to kind of recover from that mm-hmm. lest you become, you know, a Zhangshi. Yeah. It's it's also cool because the Zhangshi aren't the only antagonists to the family right they are scary but there are there is like everybody everyone else the cop who's hustling you the like the people who don't want you in your community in your in the first place they don't want you in america and i think those sentiments are echoed in our own experiences as asian americans right now i think that super relevant right um now, and I know a, 
I kind of want to cover like questions that I think consumers might have because I know that you know a lot of people have asked you questions. Some of them very thoughtful. Some of them, you know, not. Um, <laughs> some of them not. And I think you've been you know you've been pr- pretty public about what people have been saying and responses to that. And you and I, Banana, we've had our, like private conversations about mm-hmm. like how do we deal with these things. Yeah. And. If you go to the Kickstarter page, what I think is most interesting, and I think what maybe deserves more, you know, spotlight, is the creative team. And I want to bring this up because there are folks on the creative team who aren't Chinese or aren't Asian, mm-hmm. yet they're still there. Do you want to like talk about that? Because I know that you had a lot of other people who are just writing other settings and stuff. Yeah. So we are uh, the the reason why we brought on. Um, other non-Chinese creators was because we wanted to we wanted to basically like make John show like a a set like a, a mechanical thing right like this is going to be um, a story that you know other immigrant um, families can play with like you can have this we can use this as like a vehicle for storytelling for like you know other immigrant families and other, you know, people of color um, and sort of, you know, try to use this as like a way to hack it so that, you know, you could use your own stories. And so like for this, you know, for this team, like we have a whole bunch of writers uh, for the core book itself, you know, like we have Daniel, obviously, and Ross Chung and like, you know, um, Kiana Shaw and everyone who's like, you know, writing all the, the, the content about like, you know, what's it like being, you know, Chinese American or like, you know, the different Chinatowns that we have in, you know, U S and Canada. But then we also have like Jenea Kemper, who's working on like the social groups at the time. So Jenea is like, you know, super, uh, she knows like a lot about like the history of you know different social groups, especially in like the 1920s. So that's why we asked her to be on this project. And so she's working on that. Um, you know, we have Ivan Mendez, uh, Sammy Lai. They're all like consultants, but they're also like writing bits and pieces in the book itself. Um, Kristen Devine, uh, she's worked on a LA-based setting because she's from LA. Um, and uh, Sharong's writing a witchy scenario, which is a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah. So every writer is like taking their own spin on it. Um, Yoshi Creelman specifically is making a, a Japanese internment uh, camp version of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl Pierre Lewis is making a, uh, a Haitian American setting. Um, and then we also have like all these. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm super excited for it. We have like all these other writers. Uh, Jabari is working. The last I spoke with them, uh, they're working on a. Uh, so I don't know if you're familiar with this, but like back in the '80s um, or back in the '70s when punk was a big thing, um, a lot of punk bands would actually have shows in Chinese restaurants because those were the only places that they could have shows at. Um, and so there'd be. Uh, a lot of uh, destruction of property, depending on uh, which restaurant it was, but um, or which bands were playing, um, and so there's like this whole uh, whole community there that's like super interesting um, that not a lot of people talk about. So Jabari's working on um, a setting for that. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot, and uh, Maple's working on uh, a setting for um, a Filipino-American family. Um, Gian and Morgan, uh, I have to talk to them about this, but we're getting in there. <laughs> and uh, Vladimir is planning on writing a, um, a scenario based around the, uh, the Romani experience. That's really cool. I, I think it's... Um... Oh, Monty has just shared a, a really good link. I'm actually going to save that for myself um, in the chat about that, like, Chinese restaurant and the punk scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Ali has brought up a really good point in the chat about the story being told by the mechanics. And this is something that 
I think like folks who work as like cultural consultants or sensitivity readers see a lot. Um, Emma and I recently worked on um, a product together as consultants. And it was uh, like an Asian D&D product. And they wanted to use a lot of the lessons that, you know, Steve and I, we've talked about with L5R and Oriental Adventures. But what they did was they had this interesting content and the interesting art, but then they just kind of put it on top of the D&D content. So they had this Asian setting and they were like, then you'll here you'll find halflings, gnomes, elves, dwarves, and all of that, where this looks more like an Asian skin on top of a Western European fantasy framework. Mm-hmm. But Jiangshu, where, where it's super impressive, and like we've talked about with the dice mechanics, is that you know not only is your theme Asian, in this case Chinese American, but your mechanics also reflect that culture, and we need to see that more in game design. And I like like this is less of a question, more of like me like talking you up oh, and be like, you're awesome, and you and Sunfeng are awesome for doing that. Thank you. Yeah, we're hoping that the mechanics themselves are... So, like, the mechanics themselves, I feel like, are good for telling the, you know, the diaspora story, right? Like, that's what it's sort of, like, built to do. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be good for other stories that are not set, you know, in, you know... like if it was like a fantasy setting, I'm not sure if it'll work. Or if it's like you know a dungeon crawl, I don't think it would probably work out so well. Um, but I think that you know specifically for this kind of experience, it's you know it's something that we built around it. Yeah, that's that's super cool. Uh, Ting, Steve, do you have any questions? I we... Steve, you're muted. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Every time. Uh, I was just so engrossed in the conversation. That's why I was silent. Um, but I, I, we talked a little bit about this, and you got a lot of feedback around you know, a lot of the content here. A lot of it was positive. Some of it was not positive. Um, could you share a little bit about the, the non-positive, non-constructive feedback you got and kind of how you handled it? Yeah. Um, so there was this one person who said that, um, and I totally understand where they're coming from, uh, we've had some uh, people of Asian descent reach out to us and, you know, have, um, there was a little bit of pushback, basically, um, because some people were saying that it was basically sanctioning racism. Um, and so there are two ways of thinking about this, right? Like, one of them is that a lot of the tabletop RPGs that we're familiar with, a lot of people assume that it's D&D or, um, and not that d and bad, um, you know, it's a product like anything else, but like, you know, the, the thing that like a lot of people are assuming that this is, is that it's, uh, you know, it's a, a game that's like that or like Pathfinder or like, you know, any other game like that. And I think that like, that was one of the reasons why a lot of people were a little hesitant about this game, because when they think about TTRPGs, they don't think about like, you know, storytelling game or, you know, collaborative uh, anything, really. (laughs) Just like, you know, (laughs) they sort of think of it as like, you know, a guided game um, that's guided by the GM. Um, And this is guided by a GM, but it's more collaborative than, you know, something like uh, what you would traditionally see traditionally quote-unquote um and so that's uh i think that's a bit of where the pushback came from a little bit of that and also i think we are so used to seeing ourselves like being misrepresented in media in general that um you know sometimes when we see stuff that's like this um you know regardless of who creates it uh it's probably like in the back of our heads we're probably thinking oh this is going to be bad um and so like i think that's also where like the pushback came from where you know and they have no you know they don't have anything to go by when it comes to like trusting us they don't have to trust us at all but you know we did our due diligence there's like you know four five different you know parts with safety in it um 
there's like all the stuff that we've added in terms of history. It's probably like, I don't know, after layout, it's probably going to be like 30 or 40 pages of history. I don't know. But, you know, we're, we're trying. And I think that, um, and obviously we're open to feedback. Uh, we're open to like, you know, critiques. But I think that sometimes it's, it's weird because like, when you're getting this feedback from like another Asian person, it sort of feels stranger. Like it feels like a, a deeper cut. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, at least, like there were instances where I was just like questioning whether or not I could write about this. Like, is this even my own culture? Like there was this moment in, you know, writing this or like going through this Kickstarter where I was just like not sure if I was allowed to like talk about my not my own experience, but my own, you know, identity, like is, I I was having a little bit of an identity crisis at the time, but you know, it was like things like that. And it just sort of felt like, I don't know, it felt very strange. Um, and I think that this is not the first time that, you know, us as creators have experienced, you know, anything like that. There are other creators out there who've also experienced similar things when they're writing about their own cultures or identities in a game. Like this is not an uncommon thing. This happens a lot. So I think like talking to other creators of color about this kind of thing, it was super helpful (laughs) just to like ease out the feelings and emotions that came Mm -hmm. out of it. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's a really good takeaway of just seeking out these communities of people of color um, for when something like this happens that you, maybe think you might be prepared for, but when it actually happens, you you find yourself reeling, finding yourself lost, Mm -hmm. low on energy, uh, confused. Um, Being able to go back to a community like that and and speak your emotions, however raw they might be, and allowing others to kind of chime in with their own experiences and and how they've dealt with trauma in the past is a very powerful human experience. And, uh, I'm happy that you kind of shared that. Thanks. Yeah. I think one of the things I noticed when, you know, when I posted about this, like on social media, like in my private social media thing, I I noticed that um, there were some, um, you know, white creators who were chiming in and were just like, oh yeah, I've experienced something similar with my Kickstarter where, you know, people would be complaining about shipping or, you know, the components or something like that. And no, it doesn't feel like that. It's, you know, it's your identity that's being questioned, not the components of a game that's being questioned. So I think it is a lonely experience um, until you find other people who are dealing with similar things or who have dealt with similar things. Um, and yeah, it's it's a strange place to be. Yeah, I feel that. Um we're closing in on that one hour mark. Oh, sorry, everyone. <laughs> no, I, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry at all. Um, you, we, you've just provided like our audience with just like an, an incredible amount of insight into how much work, how much research, and how much preparation it takes to actually pull off something like this, design um, a game like this, and, and, and it's a wonderful game. Um, I want to like close off and to say like hey there are like as of this stream there are five days left in the kickstarter it's been funded but we need to we need to cross 100k in u.s dollars <laughs> not 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 our polar canadian dollars <laughs> oh no um, oh no so uh Jiangxi blood in the banquet hall is still on kickstarter for the next five days um if you're interested in, you know, these stories, stories of perseverance, stories of resistance, stories of, most importantly, family, uh, check it out. Steve's just linked it in the chat. Um, I, like, Banana, I'm always grateful for when we get to talk. Um, I'm grateful for, like, you know, you including me in this project. I'm grateful for you, like, taking the time to just, like, play this game with us and talk to us about this and just, you know be open about your experiences as a creator. I think more people, you know, 
need to do that. And I'm so happy that we got to do this on August 8th, Double Happiness Day. Um, so let's start with you, Banana. Where can people find you on the internet? Your Twitter handle's already on screen, but oh. if you've got websites, anything like that, where can people find you? Uh, so I am always on Twitter now because Facebook is a mess. Um, but you can find me at Banana Chan Games on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and you can find my company, Game in a Curry, uh, which is the co-publisher um, for this game, at Game in a Curry on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Nice. And then, Ting, thank you so much for joining us um, as, like, you know, a member of this panel, this discussion, this interview, but also, like, in the actual play and just being a member of our community. Uh, Ting, where can people find you on the Internet? Do you have anything going on right now? Uh, in the games world or or beyond. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, that you want to share. Twitter, Instagram, uh, the Ting One Thousand. Uh, also Twitch. Let's just stream. Getting into streaming sometimes. Uh, I'll be That's... playing in a fiasco one shot on, on coming up this coming up Wednesday night on the uh, Utopia channel. Yep. that's awesome okay so Utopia that's Utopia TV on Twitch so check that out they're doing some like amazing stuff and uh, Jess, and, Jess and Miriam put something together that's just incredible and they did so much during Gen Con yeah. it was awesome um, Steve what have you got going on you best selling any award winning author podcaster what have you got R going on right now Steve just taking care of himself if you want to reach me out Reach, reach out to me. Uh oh, uh, this is an emotional stream. I got a I'm lot sorry. of emotions going on. No, don't, don't apologize. Never apologize. Never apologize. Never apologize for that. A little bit tearing up there too earlier. Oh. I feel that. Um, but you can catch me on Twitter at d e e e m Steve d m Steve phonetically. Uh, I'm just gonna focus the next little bit of my energy on some gyms that might be opening up. Working with my old crew. We got to make sure our bodies are healthy, just like our minds and souls are healthy. That's going to be an effort, though. We got to work back on that, but it's important to us. Mm -hmm. And if telling Asian stories is important to you, uh, or you know, you're into like D and D and Pathfinder and all of that stuff, um, and you want to tell an Asian story, or you want to tell an Asian story using a different game system, you can head to UnbreakableRPG.com. Uh, we're getting good at these segues, Steve, talking about Unbreakable. Um, you can head to UnbreakableRPG.com and you can buy Unbreakable Volume 1, which is an anthology of D&D 5th Edition adventures written and edited and illustrated by Asian creators. Um, if you want to participate in Unbreakable and you want to write for Unbreakable Volume 2, scroll to the bottom of the page at UnbreakableRPG.com and there's a link, there's a form that you can click on. If you're first-time author like Steve was, uh, if you're an editor, if you're an illustrator, fill out that form, participate in volumes two, three, four, five, however many um, the Unbreakable crew decides to do. Um, it's um, just as important as I think, like Banana, I think you've done such an incredible job with, you and Senfung have done such an incredible job with Jiangshu and just putting Asian stories out there. Um, for those of you who are in that fantasy space, unbreakablerpg.com. Um, follow Asians Represent. We're at AZNS Represent on you know all social platforms except for Twitch, <laughs> where we are AZNS Rep. Um, it's a long story. Uh, I've got something going on. Um, I uh, am currently in the works of publishing Volume 2 of my Denizens of Mountains and Seas uh, zine. It's a, an OSR Chinese monster manual. Uh, so every single volume I put out eight Chinese monsters from classical literature uh, with stats, history, and context on how to use them in your games. And you can find out, you can find all that content on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Daniel H. Kwan. Uh, banana, thank you so much for, you know, being an amazing uh, like guest. Ting, thank you so much for being a part of our interviewer panel. Um, and thank you viewers, listeners, for, for joining us for this very positive yet very emotional stream. Um, 
and I love all of you for that. This was, this was incredible. Um, that being said, everyone else, please take care. Spend time with your family. And you know what? Go support your local Chinese restaurants. Go do that if you can. Safely. Wear a mask, Uber Eats, whatever you want to do. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks to Banana Chan, Ting, and Steve for joining me for this episode of Asians Represent. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. Asians Represent is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. If you head to oneshotpodcast.com, you can listen to a variety of amazing podcasts like The Broadswords, an all-woman actual play uh, fantasy TTRPG podcast focusing on roleplay, narrative, and diversity at the gaming table. If you have any questions about this episode's themes, uh, Junction Blood in the Banquet Hall, or anything else related to Asians Represent, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at AZNSRepresent or at AZNSRepresent at OneShotPodcast.com. I also want to remind you folks that we live stream on Twitch several times a month. Every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern, Steve and I, uh, alongside an amazing crew, read through Asian TTRPGs, generally the ones that need a little bit of help. Right now we're reading through Legend of the Five Rings 5th edition, the core rulebook. Um, we've been doing this for about 12 hours now. Um, this is a follow-up to our Oriental Adventures stream. Every third Saturday of the month, Amar and his amazing cast are reading through Al-Qadim Arabian Adventures, the AD&D sourcebook for like South, West, and sort of like Central Asia. If you want to tune into these live, you can head to twitch.tv slash AZNSrep. If you want to catch these after the broadcast, head to youtube.com slash AZNSrepresent. Uh, I hope you folks are staying safe, staying healthy, and of course, you know, playing games with your friends virtually. <laughs> that being said, I'm Daniel, and you've just listened to Asians Represent. Asians Represent.